When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 10, and we are recording on Friday, July 12th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, one of the editors of BookRiot.com. My uh, co-host Jeff is on vacation this week, and I am here today with Andrew Lasowski, who is the senior books editor at the Huffington Post, the co-author of a coffee table book about book design called Fully Booked, and who presents The Book Reader on Time Warner Cable. Andrew also has a British accent, which means people think he is smarter than he actually is. Is that true? Uh, It's true that I have a British accent. (laughs) I think you're quite smart, Andrew. Thanks for joining me this week. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, book writers. I am very, very intimidated to be here today. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It is so exciting. Since you started a podcast, I know I have been clamoring to be a part of it. And then I heard Chuck Wendig do such an incredible job, and suddenly I I felt that maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Oh, well, you know, our secret is that we're all just making it up as we go along, so you're going to be just fine with us here. Uh, Before we really get into the news of the week, we have a few pieces of follow-up. First, a piece of follow-up from two episodes ago uh, when I left Jeff unattended with Chuck Wendig. Uh, A commenter reminded us on the show notes from that show that Curtis Sidenfeld, whose book Sisterland had just come out that week, is a woman not a man. Uh, So we have checked. We are sure. Uh, I knew that, uh, but maybe some of you didn't. So Curtis Sittenfeld is a woman. So easy to do and make that mistake, especially, you know, in the reader web, modern literary world. uh, Oh, it is. uh, If if you want to go back in time and and give your daughter a a neutral name that could be male or female so that they advance in the modern literary world, it probably helps. Right. And a couple, uh, several episodes back, we talked about women writers using their initials um, in genre fiction to come across particularly to appeal to a male audience. And I unknow- like I did not know um, back when Book Riot started that P.D. James is a woman. So we published an article in which one of our contributors referred to P.D. James as a man repeatedly, um, and I didn't catch it, and uh, the other editors didn't catch it, and so we all learned uh, that time around. So the internet is helpful sometimes in correcting uh, our mistakes. Uh, more in follow-up, Chuck and uh, Jeff also talked a lot about Barnes & Noble and the sort of the state of things over at Barnes & Noble. And this week, the Barnes & Noble CEO, William Lynch, stepped down very suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, which is leading to speculation about the country's, the country's future, the Barnes & Noble's future. <laughs> and the country's future. When I'm, somebody think of the country. I think my coffee, oh, I think my coffee might be broken, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> we start it. It'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Right. Let's. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, Barnes and Noble CEO stepping down is. We still don't know what impact that will have. Obviously, in, in terms of people wanting to buy books and the Nook and everything else. All we know is it suggests that Barnes and Noble shareholders and board are not happy with the previous CEO. Um, I, I think that Chuck and Jeff did a really great job of covering why Barnes and Noble itself is fairly broken, and uh, it may be too late for, for it. 
Right, it'll be interesting to see uh, how that will shake out and who they will replace him with. The, the Publisher's Lunch headline, Publisher's Lunch is an industry publication, said something like uh, Barnes & Noble CEO steps down and is replaced by no one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll see what happens there. Uh, let's do our first sponsor, and then I know you have uh, something you want to talk about with Apple. So mm. our first sponsor of the show this week is Fire Knife Dancing by John Inright. It's the latest book in a series of Samoan mysteries. The previous title was Pago Pago Tango. Uh, it's about a detective named Apalu Soifua. Uh, this is the episode in which I butcher Samoan names, uh, who straddles his uh, traditional Samoan culture and modern culture. He is out on a routine patrol when he uh, sees this comes across a jungle estate and uncovers what is a smuggling ring between several islands. Um, but they're not just smuggling like drugs and jewelry. It turns out that they're trafficking humans. Uh, yeah. Ew, I know, right? Uh, not a good scene. And because these are people who are, you know, are not above much, they set up the detective to take the fall. So now he's accused of murder and he is, he's gone AWOL to try to uncover the truth and defend himself uh, so that he doesn't end up in jail, but also so that he can get these smugglers convicted. Uh, so we are told Fire Knife Dancing is great if you are a fan of serial mysteries and police procedurals. Sounds like there's a lot going on here. would be a good book to take on vacation with you. Uh, so thanks to Fire Knife Dancing by John Enright. Uh, you can check that out in the show notes. Uh, we'll have a link to it for you there, and we'll keep going with the show. So uh, also in the news of publishing this week, Andrew Apple was found guilty of price fixing. What does that mean for uh, for readers, for you know, people who don't work in the industry like we do. Yeah, well, in the short term, Apple is appealing. Uh, it seems unlikely they're going to win, but who knows? Mm -hmm. Assuming that the, the judgment is upheld, it means in the very short term, anyone who bought a book from my books will probably get a refund of like a dollar seventeen or some oh, slightly strange money. amount <laughs> uh, that that is seen to to counterbalance the the hurt that, that has been put upon you per book uh, for their alleged price fixing. Uh, it's it's. Itself, it doesn't really change that much, uh, and as has been shown elsewhere, agency pricing versus Amazon pricing doesn't necessarily immediately change the prices of books for readers either. Um, I think that what it really shows is how publishers felt that Apple might be the solution to their problems with Amazon, but it's to use the metaphor of the moment, Rebecca, I think that really what it is, is that the publishers are the people, and they're in the middle of a Sharknado. Oh, and oh, we're going to do Sharknado. Bring it. It's, it. it's, you know, they see that Amazon is circling and it's gleaming teeth and it's huge fins and, and they go running to Apple, assuming that the massive glistening fin on Apple's back is actually just a fashion statement and not itself a sign that it, it might at some point want to bite. Uh, Apple doesn't have the publisher's best interests at heart. Amazon doesn't have the publisher's best interests at heart. The publishers are the only ones who really have the best interests at heart. And what those interests are exactly is a way of trying to make money for themselves and for authors and to sustain their business models. All of that is fine. None of that is bad or evil. But the idea that Apple could somehow be a savior and help them was always going to be a slightly dangerous thing. Uh, and so I think that now what it means for readers in the very short term is that ebooks on Apple devices will probably go down a little. Um, 
that things will continue as they are. But the real problem, I think, and this was raised in the trial, and so something could come up about this, is the question of how Amazon works and the question of digital rights management in particular around the devices. So digital rights management is basically the thing that, that means that if you buy a book on a Kindle and then someone gives you a Nook for your birthday, you can't then transfer this, the Kindle book to a Nook. Uh, or to a Kobo, or to a Sony e-reader, or to anything else. And, uh, and this is the lock that publishers put on it. And publishers wanted this thing to exist. Uh, agents want this thing to exist. A lot of authors want this thing to exist. No readers want this thing to exist. No readers do. Yeah, we've talked on several episodes about creative workarounds to DRM that uh, that new book startups are using uh, to get people ebooks that they can use on any devices but the links that they have to go to are are crazy and uh, and DRM is supposedly about protecting authors and publishers and preventing piracy but uh, the publishers that have taken DRM off namely Tor have only seen their profits increase since they've removed DRM yeah, exactly. Tor and, and Forge being the, the big ones. Obviously, a lot of small publishers as well uh, are doing it too. Uh, I think that the, what may, the, the good thing that may come out of this case overall is that the Department of Justice or a section of the Department of Justice has now had a chance to take a bigger look at the whole publishing industry. Uh, they originally uh, got into this area because Amazon filed a complaint uh, about what they saw as collusion in, illegal collusion in the industry to fix prices. And it was mentioned actually in the judgment that the, the, the judge said, look, this is not the place for us to discuss whether or not Amazon is, is acting in antitrust behavior. Mm. But the question has now been raised. And maybe someone at the Department of Justice is just going to look a little bit harder. And as you know, if, if Barnes & Noble does start to lose some of its market share, then will that push Amazon into this? I think it's 70% that means they have a de facto monopoly, which really then starts to question whether some of their strangleholds should be broken. And the biggest thing that would break their stranglehold is digital rights management. If other people can sell you a book you can put on your Kindle very easily or through the Kindle, you can do it. You can email it to yourself via you know, PDFs and things. It's not straightforward. Uh, and, and so if other people could do that, then that would break Apple's stranglehold on, on being able to uh, Amazon's Amazon. stranglehold. That, yeah, that would so, really be a, to throw out the jargon, that would really be a game changer uh, for, for readers. And if the Tor and Forge results from removing DRM are indicative, then doing what's good for readers is what's good for publishers, even if publishers maybe haven't realized that. Yeah, um, but the question is if they're locked into legal deals that prevents them from being able to do that, maybe mm-hmm. it will take... A bigger thing. So, in other words, in, long story into a short Sharknado. Uh, it's right now. This deal doesn't mean that much for readers per se. How it will shake out in terms of the future of publishers and how they sell, we still don't know. Uh, but it might be a step towards a huge thing that will affect readers, which mm-hmm. could be the real questioning and, and looking very hard by the Department of Justice uh, Digital Rights. Yeah, and I think just worth mentioning it because this is one of the only stories in publishing recently that has bubbled up into just mainstream media. You know, regular newspapers mm. have been covering this, uh, you know, the price-fixing trial with Amazon have been talking about ebooks, And it's not often that I see, you know, book and publishing news bubble up that way into uh, into non-industry uh, news sources. So interesting to see that happening. A- another story, uh, a big story that we've seen all over the place this week, including at your own Huffington Post, is that author Orson Scott Card, who wrote Ender's Game, which, you know, is widely loved as a, a dystopian kid story. It's basically uh, teenagers 
fighting wars in space. Uh, it's a pretty amazing and, and like sort of a building block story that a lot of us uh, read as children before we grew up and to read things, you know, like Margaret Atwood or um, Joe Haldeman's Forever War. This is finally being adapted into a film. Uh, we should be really excited that Ender's Game is finally going to be a movie. It actually looks like it's going to be terrific. Yeah, um, trailer's great. It is. It's really fantastic. The posters are great. Um, every time that we've That's shared a new development about this with Book Riot's readers. It's been really exciting. Um, I love this book. It was a piece of my childhood. But Orson Scott Card is in some hot water, and it's not its not brand new. Uh, Orson Scott Card has been pretty vocal that he um, is anti-gay. Uh, but now that Ender's Game is coming out and he stands to make a whole lot more money off of it, there are, uh, there are readers and just you know, general people out in the culture who are protesting the uh, an Ender's Game movie. They've started a website called, uh, is it Skip Ender's Game? Yes, that's right. They skip Ender's Game uh, to support LGBT rights and keep your money out of Orson Scott Card's pockets. So this is, I think, a, a specific example in a larger debate or a conversation that we have uh, at Book Riot. We have it with readers pretty frequently every time an author steps in it publicly about what do you do as a reader when you get some information about a writer that maybe you wish you didn't know or you find out that they hold beliefs and support things that you find reprehensible? Can you separate the art from the artist or do you um, do you give up engaging with art that you might enjoy because you don't like the artist's politics or perspective? How do you shake out on this? How are you going to solve this for yourself, Andrew? Uh, it's, it is a complicated one. Because uh, it's not as simple as saying he's homophobic and he writes homophobic books. Because Ender's Game, I haven't seen any kind of uh, sensible analysis that seems to claim that any of these views come across in this story. Oh, no, it's certainly, I don't think it comes across in the books at all. Yeah, exactly. So, so that, may, that means it's not easy. Uh, it would be really, really straightforward if the book itself were, were that problematic. Uh, and, and also... Orson Scott Card is, has been pointed out in several places. He's not just outspoken about this. He actually has taken action. He, um, I think it's called the National Organization for Marriage, which is known for opposing uh, gay marriage rights. Uh, has, he, I think he's served on its board or he has helped in some way towards it. He is a lifelong Mormon and in a section of the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, which is very uh, against the idea of gay rights and, uh, and gay marriage and so on. So, so he's he's quite active in it. He's not just just says a few douchebag things. Can I say douchebag on this? I, I, just, I, said douchebag. I guess you can now. Oh, there we go. Um, and so, so he is very clearly open and active about that. So, there are lots of kind of questions to this. Number one: Should you avoid all work written by people who have objectionable views? Uh, that feels like a lot of research to do. <laughs> Uh, into authors and what they think. Mm -hmm. But if, if someone is highlighted as having objectionable views and you already know about it, and let's say you've looked into it and made sure that that, that is the case, it's not just a rumor, uh, then should you buy their books? Now, a lot of our readers have said what they do is they buy them secondhand so that the author doesn't get any profit. Ah. Uh, or some people have said, you know, I'll pirate the movie. I don't think that necessarily helps very much. It helps a little bit. It maybe helps stop $1.50 go towards Scott Card or anything else. But if the second-hand market for his book soars, then publishers are going to notice that, and it doesn't mean he won't get a big contract 
mm, in the future. That's a really um, interesting it, point. It doesn't mean, you know, that even even if a, if a movie is, is pirated hugely, it is a sign to the studios that, that a lot of people want to see it. So so it doesn't necessarily make a difference. It does stop, it stops you literally giving money to him, but you are enabling through a secondary route anyway. Um, mm. My feeling about these kinds of issues is that it is absolutely great that you start from a position of questioning whether or not you want to do this thing. Um, I fully support anybody who wants to boycott the movie or, or boycott his books and make a stand that way. I don't feel that just boycotting the movie is a very active or, or very... Um, it's, it's, it's not the most useful thing you can do if this is something you believe in. And I guess that's, that's what I feel. Yeah, that's... That this is, it, helps you, it helps you take a step towards, oh, this is helping me understand what my beliefs are. But if you just do that, it doesn't feel like a huge ask. Sure. It, it seems to me a sort of misplaced effort. Um, and I, I really wish that I never knew these things about writers that I love, you know, like, like, if you are a writer, just keep your mouth shut about your politics and your personal opinions. It's in your best interest as a writer, unless you're writing about your politics and personal opinions, I think to, to sit on that and to just be in the public uh, for the things that you create so that as an artist who is trying to sell things, you can sell them to as many people as possible, you know, um, it's, I agree with you, but the public, the book publishers don't work that way. <laughs> right. The publicity machine is all about get yourself on the platform, tweet your ideas, tell us what right, you're doing, I know, but and then the uh, interviews are all you know. What are you doing right now? What are you into? Oh, what do you you know? know. Vice magazine just did a thing which I, I is on that borderline between parody and not, where they asked a bunch of writers what they ate for lunch. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I understand that. And I think it's interesting. You know, I'm, I don't agree with Orson Scott Card's perspective here, but I think that um, there are certainly members of society who do agree with him and who perhaps are picking up his books now because they know where he stands and that he stands in the same place that they do. So I'm, I'm curious about the number of uh, new readers that he's acquiring from this information coming out versus the number of uh, people who now will not pick up his books or, or will not go see the film. It feels to me a little bit like um, like boycotting Chick-fil-A um, in support of gay marriage. You know, like I, I support gay marriage, but I'm going to eat my chicken nuggets when I want it and continue writing a big check to the human rights campaign every year. It feels like not the most, as you were saying, not the most effective form of activism if this is a thing that that you believe in. Um, it's so, it's, I think it's just a bummer though when an author turns out to not be the kind of person that you want the author to be, uh, whatever the reason is, um, as a reader, uh, as a person who listens to music, who loves movies, I would really like it if I could always keep the art separate from the artist. Um, I will go see Ender's Game. I think it's too big of a story now to, to not see, to not be able to participate in the discussion about it with people, um, with our readers and with friends online, that sort of thing. But I don't know. It's just so hairy. I'm really curious. Listeners, if you... Um, have feelings in particular about this Orson Scott Card Ender's Game thing, if finding out this information changes your willingness to see the movie, or if, uh, if you have any ideas about how to respond when it just turns out that an author you love has politics you don't love, we'd love to hear about them. Podcast at bookriot.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, man, 
I don't know. I'm just bummed about this. Like if, if like it turned out that we, okay, well, so we were joking that, um, the only thing that would delay our recording this morning was if big news broke and you had to cover that news instead of recording. And we were talking about what hypothetically might be big enough news to do that. And you said, well, like if Toni Morrison turns out to be a hitman, um, which would be awesome, (laughs) but also super disappointing. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I, th- I think she'd make a great. Like, then could we get a comic book of it? <laughs> like, maybe some. Maybe we should write Tony Morrison Hitman anyway. Right. As a, I think she'd be a Hitman for good. I know, think, an Avenger. Uh, like Dexter, sort of. Exactly. I so, think that's, that that's exactly what. Tony Morrison Hitman is like a Tony Morrison meets Archer meets Dexter situation. Yes. This exactly. Is, um, <laughs> just send us all your dollars now. We'll, we, we can make this happen. Uh, to, to return to the to the Elson Scott Card thing uh, quickly, though, mm-hmm. uh, I think that there's there's two different things as ways in which authors or, or creatives, people whose work you like, can disappoint you. And one is that they can just be annoying or stu- or idiots or you know it, it's fairly well documented that Will Dull was very unpleasant to children and mm. that Enid Blyton was probably very unpleasant to children and didn't like them either and that's kind of like oh well what a shame but I guess that twisted imagination produced the kind of scary things that that were contained in his work mm-hmm. uh, and it is also true that it, no matter how much you uh of horse Orson Scott Card's politics. It is his brain from which emerged Ender's Game and, and other stories. And if you love the stories, it is what makes up him, uh, which is partly his culture, his upbringing, uh, his abhorrent views are part of him, uh, have in some way helped to create the story. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you should itself avoid the story. Uh, we aren't fully in control of the, the meanings of the things that we create. Uh, he could entirely unintentionally have created something that was pro-gay rights or, or um, against, in, in opposition to what his actual views are without realizing it because the subconscious is a, a strange and busy hmm. Now I want a reading of Ender's Game that can illustrate that. Someone uh, do this, please. Please, that would be great. Uh, I, I think that really for me it comes down to what kind of world do we want to live in and if we want to live in a world in which uh, people had the freedom to marry uh, no matter what their uh, sexuality or whatever their, their assigned gender is or, or anything else, then it comes down to doing more than just not seeing a movie, I think. That makes a statement. Uh, I think that another option is also for the movie makers, the actors to all, uh, as a group, do an event which is in opposition to Austin Scott Cast things and they get the publicity because of the situation that they're in, it gives an opportunity, it gives a platform for, oh, for that. That's so, so it is a great chance to do something as a result of this. So far, the movie makers have been very cagey and said, you know, we don't necessarily agree with him, you know, he's away from, from the set, which isn't quite enough, I think, if they actually don't agree and they want to make things better. Uh, I've seen suggestions as well, which I really like, of if you want to see the movie, go see the movie, but pay double whatever you paid to the movie theatre towards an advocacy group in opposition to Scott Card's uh, uh, views, or, or volunteer, or involve yourself more deeply, because this is this is a way of provoking you into thinking about what are the things that you care about. Mm-hmm. And I think the next step, going beyond, uh, and it's you know, if you want to boycott the movie, boycott the movie. If you don't, then don't. But if if you feel that the views are abhorrent, do more. Mm-hmm. That I think is is the opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to sum it up there. That um, whoever the author is who has views that you don't agree with, whatever those views happen to be, skipping their work is 
a potential first step uh, in your activism against those views, but not sufficient in itself to really make a change. Yeah, a couple of years ago, um, do you remember the, the song Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba? Who doesn't remember this exactly. song? <laughs> get knocked down, we get up again. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they're actually from my hometown, and I saw them play loads and when I was growing up. They were always around. They were some anarchist group. And they were offered a huge amount of money for, them, for their song or one of their songs to be used in a car advert. Mm -hmm. And they said yes. And everyone was kind of surprised about why they said yes, because they're very kind of uh, anti car and, and pro-environmentalists and anarchist group and, and they said well we said yes because we took this huge amount of money and we gave it all to an anti-car advocacy group because <laughs> if we just said no then somebody else would have taken the money and nothing would change oh, that's so by saying yes and, and doing something active with it we're actually trying to provoke a difference and trying to make a difference with it huh that is, that's very interesting. And who knew you're from the same town as Tub Thumping? <laughs> oh yes, that's why when I get knocked down You always get back up again? Ain't never going to keep me down <laughs> We might need new bumper music for the show this, <laughs> this week. Uh, we got author birthdays to do. Jeff uh, very kindly did some research on this for us. Uh, so this week we will be celebrating the birthday of Hunter S. Thompson. He was born July 18th, 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, as my fellow Southerners have informed me it is pronounced. Louisville. Yeah. So Hunter S. Thompson, wow. really well known for... Um, you know, gonzo journalism for fear and loathing in Las Vegas for doing these sort of outrageous uh, things in life and in writing. Uh, he never graduated from high school. And here is why. When he was a senior, he spent 31 days in jail for being an accessory to a robbery. And the day after he was released, he sunk almost every boat in the harbor at a local lake. Of course he did. Right? Like that is, I guess, when you're a teenager, he, this would have been, what, the early 50s? Uh, that's what you do to rebel is you sink all the boats in the local harbor like after you get released from jail. So his writing his own mythology. <laughs> right. He started early. Mm. Uh, his principal did not allow him to take his final exams. And so he was he never graduated from high school. Um, clearly, this did not impede his progress as a writer. Um or, you know, his ability to be successful. But that is an interesting story, I think, to know that he was a character, you know, f from way back. Um, yeah, the almost every boat, I think, is really intriguing. Which boat did he go, you know what, that one's kind of nice. Right. I yeah. should do the others. That we'll one, we'll yeah. just leave this one here. Like, or maybe it was just unsinkable. He couldn't find a way to, <laughs> to get it down. I'm, I don't even know how one begins to sink all of the boats in a harbor. What would you have to put on them to make them sink. Uh, I, I couldn't even speculate. I would wonder if he just went with a hand drill. And right. We should not, we shouldn't do physics on the Book Riot yeah. podcast. It's bad yes. enough when we try to do math. But uh, yeah, Hunter S. Thompson, really fascinating figure, very complicated. He's writing uh, a lot of misogyny, um, but a lot of it, it all, a lot of it reads like it's, it's written in a kind of manic state, but as has been pointed out, he can't be that high or that drunk while he writes, because you simply can't sit at a typewriter that Right, you, you couldn't. Uh, uh, maybe, so some so, of it a cultivated image for yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. And some, and some of it was dictated, um, but still, it's uh, my favorite of his is Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, because mm. it has a real kind of focus to it of the, the Nixon um, McGovern election. Really forces him to, to just be in one place, and uh, it's 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 a terrific read if if a very manic one. Yeah, and uh, so our other birthday this week is Cormac McCarthy, who was born on July twentieth, nineteen thirty three, in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, it turns out, shares an editor 
with William Faulkner, or did share an editor. McCarthy sent the manuscript to his first novel called The Orchard Keeper to Random House. Um, Random House went on to publish the novel, and McCarthy's editor there was Albert Erskine, who had been William Faulkner's editor at the time of Faulkner's death in 1962. Uh, Publishing and the world of books are just full of these little connections. Uh, It makes me think about if, uh, if Faulkner had been more actively writing at the time that McCarthy was published, uh, we probably would have seen Faulkner blurbs on McCarthy's debut novel because, <laughs> uh, because that's how that happens. And you mm. just, you just got a galley in the mail that you uh, posted on Instagram yesterday. That is a debut novel with a Thomas Pynchon blurb. Yeah. How did that come about? And, uh, well, one of our colleagues, Ryan Chapman commented on that photo that they share an editor. So if yeah. you were, if you were wondering how to get Thomas Pynchon to blurb your debut novel, that's how it works. Uh, so happy birthday to Cormac McCarthy, who we know is still alive, and he is um, actually work- working on a script. He's written the script for a movie to be directed by Ridley Scott, um, which still was alive, not tweeting, as not was tweeting. mistakenly reported last year. I think it man, was when, he came out. He'd be so great on on Twitter, though. And I just came across a Tumblr this morning related to him called Yelping with Cormac. Yes, <laughs> you've seen this. Yes, I have. It's wonderful. It imagines Cormac McCarthy writing Yelp reviews for things like American Apparel. Uh, and it's fantastic if you're into, if you appreciate that voice and sort of the uh, weird uncanniness of the idea of Cormac McCarthy, like one being on the internet or two writing Yelp reviews. It's, it's really terrific. Um, so we were, I guess we were kind of downers in the first part of the show, Andrew, with, with Orson Scott Card and politics and authors making us sad with their views. So let's talk about some people doing some cool things in, yes. in books, some literary heroes of the week, maybe. Uh, my shout out goes to the folks at Book People in Austin, Texas. They have created a camp that brings Rick Reardon's Percy Jackson series to life. Um, so what I know of the Percy Jackson series, it's uh, it's for kids. I've heard that kids who love Harry Potter often love Percy Jackson. And the main character discovers that he's like descended from Greek gods and it weaves in all of this stuff about mythology. And so there's this camp half blood and the good people at book people created a camp in 2006 when a group of their young readers said, wouldn't it be cool if we could go to camp half blood for real? So for the last six years, book people has created this camp and hosted it every year for, um, for local kids to, who are Percy Jackson fans to get to experience the world of the book in real life. Um, yeah, I think this kind of thing is, is terrific. I think that, that they obviously have to be really careful with copyright. They're probably breaching it. Mm. And I really hope that their publishers just let them alone because the whole thing looks fantastic. Uh, and it's, it's, it seems like an, a great way to combine the books and their fans and the summer camp. I mean, who doesn't love summer camp? It's so cool. The uh, LA Review of Books featured a piece this week by um, Topher Bradfield, who's the children's outreach coordinator at Book People. And he mentions in there that they have support from Rick Reardon and from the publisher, which is Disney Hyperion. So uh, kudos to that publisher and to the author for seeing that this is a cool, it's a cool thing. I would have loved to get to go to something like this, maybe like Nancy Drew summer camp. Uh, my summers were more like the babysitter's club, which is not nearly as exciting. Um, 
And it's, it's great as well because they're not just sitting around reading the book or, or you know, just talking about it. They're doing archery and they're doing scavenger hunts and they're doing all kinds of things all inspired by the book, which is just what we want. Yeah, they're drawing connections between like history and mythology and literature and art. And this seems like a really great idea to me for bookstores. Um, maybe one of the groups of independent booksellers could get together and do them regionally. Like Harry Potter is obviously huge enough to have gotten its own theme park. But there are these great kids series that are beloved, that have really vivid, exciting worlds to them. And maybe they're not big enough to also have their own theme parks. I don't know that Disney is going to build a Percy Jackson theme park, but to be able to bring the book to life for kids in a way that they can experience it, that um, that they can meet other people who love those books, like that's a that's a thing that is super exciting as a reader. And I think one of the best parts of being a reader is when you click with someone else who, who loves that book that you love and you know, like now we understand each other. Um, I think it's great that these kids get to have that from, from early on and I would love to see where else they could go. Like, could you do a Narnia summer camp? Um, or maybe a winter camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you could also do a camp where you, that you start off by reading the book as a group, like for the first day or something, and then all the activities you unbeknownst to you when you arrive have all been prepared and themed around this book that you suddenly all got into. Oh, that would be so cool. Um, or you get to sort of build some of it yourselves based on mm. your experience of the book. Um, I would love to hear from our listeners who are more familiar with kids' books right now than I am about uh, about which other children's series would be great for this. Um, hey, forget children's series. I want to do it with adult books. Right. But, uh, so, so what do you want? Where, where are you going to camp this summer, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. Where am I going to camp? Well, I, I just recently read Shining Girls, and I'm trying to think how that would work as a camp. That would be kind of scary. Mm, I uh, would... Uh, I would do camp maybe in... Oh, night film. I just read the Galley of Night film. Now that is waiting for a summer camp. Ah, that's Marisha Pessel, right? Yes, coming out later this year. Uh, I won't give anything away except to say that it would make an awesome adult summer camp. Ah, interesting. I think maybe... Hmm. Well, I did just read Lexicon by Max Berry, which was like... Uh, it was like X-Men plus the magicians with a side of Nick Harkaway. Like there's, it, it, I'm pretty proud of the, that blurb for that. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's fantastic. These uh, teenagers get recruited to an exclusive secretive school and they're not learning magic. They're learning about like neuro-linguistics and these words that unlock people's brains basically. And, and they say compromise when if if I say the magic words to you or the right words, it compromises you so that you do whatever I will tell you to do. So it's all about learning to control people with words. And it's a, you know, it's a little fantastic. Um, if these words exist, I don't know about them, uh, but it would be, it would make for an interesting summer camp for like super nerds to learn about how, how words are tied into the way that we think and how different people interpret language differently i would i would do that and then you get to like fight baddies and take on super villains as well save the world Sold. save the world with language yeah word camp i'm in <laughs> right word camp totally uh my other favorite story of like just great fun things people did in books this week is from uh the Huffington Post, and it's one of the things that you tossed in to discuss um there was a giant Mr. Darcy emerging from a lake somewhere. Uh, in the Serpentine in London, yeah. Mm. What is the story? 
So it, it's really, it's connected to the TV show of Pride and Prejudice, uh, okay. the moment when Colin Firth emerges from the lake with a, a wet shirt on. Uh, and just became such an iconic cultural moment and uh, book sales soared as a result of that. It's it's not directly in the book, I don't think, but uh, was added by the screenwriter. It became such an iconic moment that there is now a, I think it's a 12-foot high sculpture uh, of a giant Mr. Darcy emerging from the lake. And he, he doesn't look that much like Colin Firth, and it also is slightly creepy. It's, it's kind of got a whole Godzilla vibe going it's on. It's super creepy. <laughs> he looks like, he sort of looks a little melty. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's weird. Um, I'm, I'm happy because our show notes here say giant Mr. Darcy emerges from the lake, fights Godzilla, kills Nessie, <laughs> which has not happened. I was thinking it would be cool if they took this thing on tour around the world, if they took the statue and did like a Flat Stanley sort of project with it. Do you know Flat Stanley? I do know Flat Stanley, yes. I, it would be great. Giant Mr. Darcy goes to the Empire State Building. Uh, or I think it would be great if they just randomly placed it into like people's garden ponds and you woke <laughs> up in the morning and opened your curtains and there is this 12-foot Mr. Darcy staring back at you. And then they just take it away the next day and put it and scare somebody else. That's hilarious. But it's, it's more, kind of vaguely more seriously. I think it is great for, for one reason, which is that I think we have enough statues of, of dead white men uh, who did heroic things. Uh, I think that the more statues we can have that are playful, that are fictional, that are about inspiring our imaginations and encouraging us to think about stories in, in this way rather than the constructions of history, I think are much better and much more exciting. Yeah, that's, you know, that is a great point. So even though Mr. Darcy is an imaginary white man, it's cool to see yeah. a statue of a character and also that the statue makers or whoever was behind commissioning this thing didn't get so stuck on the details of the book or on the movie's faithfulness um, to the book that they refuse to do this because this it has become an iconic scene uh, in the Pride and Prejudice sort of social memory of what that book is, even though it doesn't really happen this way in the book. We all can think of Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy coming out of that lake, um, sort of like Phoebe Cates coming out of the swimming pool in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's a statue they should build. <laughs> That's a whole other can of worms. Uh, <laughs> but... I think yeah, it goes alongside. Cool. Yeah, it goes alongside the construction of the the Hulk statue outside a library to encourage kids to read, or the. I think there's a Mothman statue somewhere in West Virginia in some small oh, town. Oh, that's creepy. Um, yeah, it's creepy as heck, but it, it really it, it, it stops you and, and makes you look around and, and try and understand what it's referring to and, and think about that. So yeah, it makes a it makes a connection mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in a really nice way. We so did, uh, I, we did a lot of bad job old dudes last week. So these are our, our Percy Jackson segment and this giant Mr. Darcy statue are our good job book people moments. Yeah. Let's, let's now try and move it away from, from white males. <laughs> right. Like maybe, or green males. Right. It strikes me that if we wanted to do a Pride and Prejudice sort of takeoff, you could also do a statue of like Bridget Jones um, or... Why not Jane Austen? Jane Austen. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a Jane so Austen Lizzie statue. Or, yeah, yeah, a Lizzie Bennet statue would be terrific. Um, 
It's time for our next sponsor. Uh, our second sponsor of the show this week is audible.com, which is an awesome audiobook service uh, that I use, that Jeff uses, that I think uh, you're familiar with too, oh, Andrew. Yes. They have more than 100,000 titles to choose from in all sorts of genres. So whatever you're into, be it thrillers or romance, business, comedy, science fiction, uh, it plays on your iPhone, on your Kindle, your Android, and more than 500 devices for listening to audiobooks anytime and anywhere. And this week we have a 30-day free trial to Audible, which includes a credit for one free audiobook download. The offer is not available on the audio on the audible.com homepage. You need to go to audibletrial.com forward slash book riot. And uh, if you do, if you want to try Audible out and you're looking for recommendations, I will start and um and even though I don't like Orson Scott Card's politics, I will heartily recommend Ender's Game on audiobook read by Stefan Rudnicki and Harlan Ellison. Um, I listened to it a couple of years ago uh, for the first time in, like, I hadn't encountered the story since my childhood. And it was really terrific. It's creepy. Um, there are sort of the, if you know the book, there are these sort of... Um, I guess they're generals. There are these adult men who are in charge of like strategizing this whole war and manipulating the situations and sort of putting kids in these positions. I guess they're basically the chess masters and their voices. They're, they're scary characters and the voices uh, that Stefan Rennicki and Harlan Ellison give them are also very scary. Um, it, it really brings the story to life. Um, I thought it was super enjoyable. So you can check out Ender's Game on Audible. Uh, have you listened to anything good, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that Audible do a terrific job. They are the biggest player in the audiobooks market, but they don't seem to sort of rest on their laurels in that. They they are consistently putting out some really fantastic uh, audiobooks, and, and I think they have a really great platform. And I'm not even receiving their sponsorship money, so I can, I can say that with, with all honesty. Do I, I understand? So do you, because they are they are terrific, um, and they always you know they, they always win plenty of awards in the audiobook awards each year and, and so on. Um, I've I, uh, listened to them for years and years. Uh, I, for me, one of the first books I listened to them was um, Richard Feynman's book, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Mm. Uh, and I, 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 Raymond Todd does all the Richard, well, most of the Richard Feynman books on Audible. He has this wonderful drawl that really fits into Richard Feynman's style. Uh, and whenever I think about my favorite audiobooks, my favorite moments, I always think about listening to that and re-listening to that and, and just getting into the rhythm of the sound and, and the story that way. Uh, audiobooks are really interesting because there's, there's that whole thing you can do now with some audiobook readers where you can, uh, you know, you, you're reading up to chapter four and then you can jump to the audiobook and then jump back to the text. But I think that completely changes the experience. I think listening to an audiobook is so different from reading a book. Oh, I, I so, agree. Um, I find when I'm reading books, um, I tend to hear the language in my head rather than like see the movie of the story mm. playing out. Um, so when I read something that has really extensive world building in it, it's often frustrating for me. I just don't, I, I just can't see it in my head that way. But for some reason, listening to a story that has extensive world building or that takes place in a world that's not our world and that I, that I need to be able to picture to really understand the story, hearing that I'm um, coming across in the voice of a great reader makes me able to to do that and that experience is different from reading. I think maybe I could go back and forth for nonfiction between print 
an audiobook, but for fiction where you're you're getting into a world that the author has created, for me that experience is different in print um, versus hearing it. Yeah, and uh, but they're both equally intimate that I really like. Oh, I think yeah. watching TV, you have this distance, whereas you're mm-hmm. you're plugging straight into your brain, either through your ears or your eyes. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's so. Uh, audibletrial.com forward slash book riot if you want your free uh, download and audible trial from us and thanks to audible for sponsoring the show you want to talk about new books sure let's do it all right uh new books this week these are all out they came out most of them on this this past tuesday so by the time the show airs and already right now you could walk out and pick them up at your local bookstore download them to your e-reader of choice whatever makes you happy uh the first one is i wear the black hat by chuck klosterman Uh, i hadn't heard of this until this last week i love chuck klosterman he does really interesting uh pop culture commentary on everything from movies to music to sports um, he's one of those people whose brains connect absolutely everything, um, even and particularly things that y- you didn't think made any sense being connected to each other previously. Um, so I saw him Tuesday night in Jersey City um, at the kickoff event for Word Bookstore's Jersey City location. They have an awesome <laughs> bookstore in Brooklyn. Uh, and they're opening a Jersey City location. So Chuck Klosterman was their first event, um, which was held at an awesome bar that's also an arcade, which is, wait for it, called Barcade. Uh, <laughs> but he was a great speaker. And the new book, um, I Wear the Black Hat, is about villainy. And it's a, uh, about the cultural appeal of good guys and bad guys. Um, what we mean when we say that someone is evil and how our understanding of who the good guys and the bad guys are evolves as we age and as we are able to, uh, to understand culture better. And the example that he gave in his talk was that, you know, when you're young and you watch Star Wars, you identify most with Luke Skywalker and that the older we get, the more we are likely able to identify with Darth Vader. Um, and, and, and that appeal of maybe, not being wholly good. Uh, so I've started reading this. Um, it's very interesting so far. If you like that sort of mixing media brand of cultural commentary and, and Klosterman throws in a lot of memoir to his essays as well. So, um, so far so good with that one. Yeah, I've read it actually. It's, uh, it's good. He's very self-effacing when he talks about himself. Uh, and it's, that's very endearing, I think in terms of his tone, Mm-hmm. And he, he does make some really interesting connections in it. Uh, it. It didn't feel like any of it was hugely groundbreaking, but all of it was very interesting and, and very engaging. Yeah, I think he, he said, maybe in an interview that, that I've read with him, that he's, he's not really trying to necessarily do something new or he, he knows that he's not creating something wholly original, but that he's maybe saying things in a way that, that they haven't said before or, um, or writing them in a way that people who aren't going to read academic analysis will read his instead. Uh, I think he's, he's pretty fun. He does some great work for ESPN. Uh, if you like to read you know, sports inside culture, uh, pretty fantastic. The next is your pick. Yes, To America With Love by A.A. A. Gill. Uh, so A.A. Gill is a British journalist. Uh, he's a terrific writer. He writes uh, food reviews sometimes. He writes literary things. Uh, he writes usually for the Sunday Times in England, I think, mm. and Vanity Fair as well. Uh, he, his previous, well, one of his previous books called A.A. Gill as a Way uh, about his travels is, is just very well written and very interesting. And, and this one, uh, To America with Love, is, 
he, he, well, he always likes to take slightly contrary positions. And so for him, talking mostly to a European audience, I think, he's saying, stop talking down about America. And ah. uh, he actually has a lot of relatives in America. He's spent a lot of time here. Uh, he's spent a lot of time in Kentucky. Uh, and he's spent a lot of time in New York and elsewhere. Uh, and it's, it's a really interesting take on American history and moments of American culture uh, with, a, with a distance to it as looking at how are these things being interpreted by Europeans, uh, especially British people, and the things that you think are happening are not necessarily happening. So I think its, it's natural audience is more people who are based away from the States, but if you want to read somebody else's perspective uh, who is in love with America and what it stands for, uh, and also has a very witty turn of phrase. He's, he's very biting and he's very funny. Uh, I think this is a really good read. That one sounds like fun. Uh, my, my next pick, you know, doing these new book segments for the show has turned into my buying a bunch of books that I hadn't heard of before, but that when I'm making notes for the show, I'm like, oh, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the latest one of those is called Kiss Me First um, by Lottie Mogok. Mogok? I'm not sure how you say this. It's a debut novel just out from Random House. Um, I had not heard of this until I started making show notes last night, um, but I started reading it. It sounded terrific, and so far it is. It's about a young woman who joins an online forum about ethical debate. Um, it has this, the, the online forum has this very charismatic sort of guru leader um, who very slowly um, by complimenting her on how intelligent she is and promoting her up through these forums entices her into a project where she is going to spend six months impersonating another woman online because that woman wants to commit suicide without her family and friends knowing that that's what she's done. She doesn't want them to suffer the pain of knowing that she's killed herself. So this young woman agrees to spend six months impersonating uh, impersonating this woman online. And we know from the outset of the book that... Um, that the woman agrees to do it and that things did not go so smoothly because we're hearing about it after the fact and the main character is telling us things like she's been interviewed by the police, um, she's talking about the leader being featured in the news and described as a cult figure, described as a, basically a psychopath. So we know like some things are not what they seem here. And I have all sorts of guesses about, like, does this woman who wants to kill herself actually exist? Or is our narrator being pulled into a larger experiment or, um, you know, some sort of nefarious situation. Um, I'm about 50 pages into it. It's a really interesting premise. Um, so that is Kiss Me First, which sounds like a romance novel title, but clearly is not. Uh, and the last title that I want to shout out today is uh, The Light in the Ruins by Chris Bojalian. He is a great friend of the site, so we want to let you know that his latest book is out. It's about love and despair and revenge in post-World War II Tuscany. Um, Congratulations, Chris. Yeah, I have not had a chance to to read this yet, um, but I met Chris Bojalian when I was a bookseller several years ago, and he came into the Barnes & Noble where I worked um, and was very, you know, just kind and gracious, signing stock and talking to booksellers, um, has a wonderful reputation among booksellers and readers for being accessible and fun. Uh, he's a lot of fun on Twitter, and he's been a good friend to Book Riot, so we want to let you know that his book is out now. That's called The Light in the Ruins. Uh, and very quickly, I guess, because this our time is flying this morning, oh. Andrew, um, you are such good company. 
and yourself. Goodreads uh, did a survey about book abandonment. Uh, and they published an infographic of the results about the most abandoned books as measured by books most frequently marked as abandoned, did not finish, or unfinished on readers' shelves at goodreads.com. So do you, uh, you want to guess what the top five most abandoned books are? Uh, I'm afraid I have seen this infographic. So. Oh, you have seen. I should have forbidden you in Jeff's style of forbidding people from, <laughs> from looking at survey results. So, uh, I guess the, one of them is not a surprise at all, Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the examples there is I'm a bit of a lit snob as being a reason for abandoning that. There's also Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, J.K. Rowling's Casual Vacancy, which... I have not read. It makes sense to me if you were going into that expecting it to be Harry Potter. Why you? Yeah, would... which was not what it was ever going to be. But yeah, it's it's fine. It's not a terrible book. But if you're not enjoying it, I mean, I feel very strongly that if you're not enjoying a book, feel free to stop reading. Oh, I don't feel like absolutely you to, to keep going. Yeah, um, and the girl with the dragon tattoo is one of these most abandoned books. Um, the fifth one is one that I would not have guessed. I guess we, we've talked about um, our survey results at Book Riot for most loved and most hated books and how significantly those titles overlap. You know, the, the more widely read a thing is, the more chances it has to be hated. Um, so this fifth one, I guess I just wasn't aware it was that widely read to be as hated um, or as frequently abandoned as these other ones. But it's Wicked by Gregory Maguire. Mm. Uh, and the reason that Goodreads tosses out for it is that it's not the same story as the Broadway show, not not exactly the same story. So maybe readers seeing uh, the musical and wanting the book to be the musical uh, found it out. But this infographic, we'll put the link in the show notes, also highlights the top five abandoned classics. Um, Catch-22 is number one, which I, makes me sad, but is also, I think, surprising. I thought it would be maybe War and Peace, maybe fewer are fewer people attempting War and Peace? I I think that this is also related to who Goodreads readers are, or Uh rather who Goodreads people are who tag their books this frequently. Ah, that's Uh, a good point. So a lot of people will only go onto Goodreads and add their books when they finish them, as uh, I have read this book and now I will add it and review it. So it it comes down to who are these people doing this. And I think Catch-22 is one of those books that a lot of high school students are given to read. That's true. Uh, and they don't necessarily do all the reading they're supposed to. Or people pick it up because they're told to. You know, maybe maybe that says, I, I don't know, we don't have enough data to know exactly who these people are. Yeah, it's uh, fun to, it's fun to yeah. speculate. Uh, they also yeah. talk about what's the thing that makes you put a book down, uh, what keeps you turning pages, and when do you abandon a book, um, which I think is interesting. It asked at fewer than 50 pages, between 50 and 100 pages, 100 pages, more than 100 pages, or I always finish no matter what. And 38.1% of their um, readers said they always finish a book no matter what. Which um, are you? Oh, I try to give it at least 50. Um, I think usually, so my abandonment point, if I quit a book, is usually between 50 and 100 pages, which puts me in the second largest group of the Goodreads results. Uh, 27.9% of people said that that's when they quit. Uh, the fewest people quit at the 100-page mark, um, which is 7.6%. Then we've got more than 100 pages, 10%, and fewer than 50 pages, 15.8%. Where do you quit? As soon as it gets bad? 
<laughs> uh, well, I, I kind of have two kinds of reading. One is is the reading from all the books I get sent at work, which is you know, about fifty a day. Uh, so there are hundreds of books a year for whom I quit after reading a few pages or a first chapter because I've picked it up because it's outside the kinds of things I'm expecting us to cover. But you never know. Mm. So so I, I give them a chance to to lure me in, even if the cover slash press release slash information slash publisher slash author slash all the other information you have to go on uh, hasn't already tried to grab me. But then putting those aside, uh, I usually finish if I've got past that far, but occasionally I'll just get to a point where I say, you're annoying me now and life's too short and uh, put it to one side. And then that tends to be after about maybe 80 pages. So yeah, 50 to 100. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a common place. Uh, I used to be a finish no matter what person. And I don't remember when it switched, but I sort of think like all of a sudden I was just like, well, I can't do this. I wish I remembered the first book that I, that I quit. I think I've gotten, as soon as you got busy. Yeah. Right. Right. Probably as soon as I graduated from college and had to start working and not just reading books all the time. Uh, it's, these are interesting. I think it's always fun to talk with readers about what makes them quit a book, what their deal breakers are. I believe we actually have a post coming up at book, right? This week, um, about what our deal breakers are in reading. Um, but this 50 page rule is interesting. There are a lot of classics that probably wouldn't pass the 50 page rule. So that is a fun thing to consider as well. Or are the books where you tell people like, okay, it's a slow start, but really you have to keep going. Uh, I wonder what I would have missed if I had quit in, inside that first 50 pages, but uh, cool infographic from Goodreads. I like it that they have all this crazy data and that they are willing to share some of it with the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but this, this just coming in, it turns out that Tony Morrison is a contract killer. Oh, my goodness. Um, for the forces of good. So, so I think we're going to have to wrap this up. We are going to wrap up. Thank you uh, for joining me this week, Andrew. And thank you all for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Where can we find you, sir? You can find me on Twitter at Twixplosion. Twitsplosion and Andrew uh, helps assist with the Huffington Post uh, books Twitter feed as well. You can I, find I mostly mostly that's me. Uh, yes, you can find Book Riot, of course, at bookriot.com on Twitter at bookriot on facebook.com forward slash bookriot. Uh, we are all over the place, and we hope that you have a very good week in reading. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Rebecca. Bye bye bye, bye book rioters. <laughs>